precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Be seated. Well, it's great to be here with everyone this morning. God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming uh, to spend this beautiful Lord's Day with us. Uh, I love this time of year. I especially love driving down Coltrane and coming here to church every day during the week, but on Sundays as well, all those red buds out there and a lot of Bradford pears around blossoming. It's just a beautiful time to, to celebrate God's creation, the wonder of it. I pray that we've come here with uh, hearts anticipating our time of worship here today and our time in God's Word. I'll remind you, this is the first Sunday of the month, so at the end of the service, uh, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, so you can be uh, preparing your hearts for that time together. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. We're in a study now of the book of 1 Peter. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, uh, we're calling this series in 1 Peter, Still Standing, but I've titled this morning's message, uh, Christ at Work. Some of you may have heard uh, the famous story of the days when uh, Sir Christopher Wren was building St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And on one occasion, he uh, stopped by to, to check out the progress of the project. And there were several stonemasons working. And he asked one of the men, he said, what are you doing? And the man said, well, I'm cutting a stone. And he asked another man, he said, well, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm, I'm making a living. And he asked a third man, he said, what are you doing? And the man paused for a moment and straightened up and said, I'm building a cathedral. I love that because that's the perspective that God wants all of us to have about our work, uh, whatever we do. Uh, we all do some kind of work. If you're a student right now, really being at school every day is your work. I mean, even if we're retired, if you work in the home, we're all working, doing something for God. And how we view our work is critical. Uh, the average worker in America spends 112 working hours every week, that is at work and, and doing the commute as well. On average, uh, the average person spends 13 years and two months of their lives at work. It's about 90,000 hours of your life. That's a ton of time. But I think one of the, the sad things in the body of Christ today is that very few of us have a robust theology of work. Uh, we we kind of lack a, a biblical view of vocation. And I think one of the key reasons for this, sadly, is, is the failure of pastors, I think, to meaningfully connect what happens on Sunday to what happens on Monday. It's often called the, the Sunday to Monday gap. There's kind of a, a gap between what we do here and how we go live that out and apply that in our daily lives, especially in the workplace. And I think this, this Sunday to Monday gap is real and it's regrettable. And what I hope to do this morning is narrow that gap a little bit. And I'd like to in the next year or two, I'm not sure when I'm going to do this, but bring a, a series of messages about work and what the Bible uh, says about work because it's so important. Uh, scripture tells us that our work is intrinsically valuable. I mean, think about the fact that God is the ultimate worker. Uh, the Bible opens with God working. In the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. And you and I are created in His image, and we're created to work as well. And God wants our relationship with Him to transform how we work and to transform why we work. And so as believers, as we work every day, whatever we do, however meaningful we may think it is, or however menial it may seem, we need to view our work every day as building a cathedral, uh, to the glory of God. Let me read uh, these verses for us this morning. 1 Peter uh, 2, 18 uh, through 21. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, 
not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. Now, I want to set the context here again for us this morning. If you've been with us, you'll know that uh, Peter is writing this book in the early 60s A.D., and he's writing to some believers in the, the area of modern-day Turkey. They're undergoing uh, some what we would call soft persecution for their faith. They're being mocked and maligned and, and mistreated for their faith in Christ. And the first section of the book, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 10, is about salvation. He grounds these believers in the salvation they have in Jesus Christ. But beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, we come to the second main section of the book, and the theme there is submission. And verses 11 and 12, actually verse 12 mainly, is kind of a hinge verse, and it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What he's saying here is when God comes and visits someone you know with salvation, they may glorify God because of the attractive, beautiful life you lived before them that God used to help draw them to faith in himself. So he's talking here about living an attractive, beautiful life making the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive by the way we live. And the key word in this section is the word submission. In fact, you see it right there in verse 13, submit to the, uh, to the government. We're going to see here this morning, servants be submissive to your masters. Here in a few weeks, we'll see it in the home, in marriage. So what Peter does after kind of setting the table here and saying, keep your lives attractive or, or beautify the gospel through the way you live he moves through the primary institutions God has ordained, government and workplace and, the, and marriage, and he shows how we are to make the gospel attractive in these various areas of life, how we live as a witness for Christ in these various arenas. And last time we saw that he begins with government, and this is a great time for us to be thinking about this because of all the polarization and division and all the anger that's out there in our culture. And how we respond and relate to government as believers is a powerful witness. We can make the gospel attractive by how we relate to our government, how we think about government. But in verse 18 here, where we come this morning, there's a shift from government and our submission in that arena to the workplace. And the main thought really in our passage this morning is our work makes the gospel attractive as we follow the example of Christ's submission. So our work makes the gospel attractive as we follow the example um, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got two simple points here this morning you can see in your outline. I want to look at the mandate, that is what we're to do, and then the motivation or why we do it. So the mandate here in verse 18 is, servants, be submissive to your masters. Now, obviously, the setting of this passage is in the first century Roman Empire within the institution of slavery. So I want to just give a little background about slavery. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think we need to understand something of this to uh, really get the full impact of our text this morning. 
Uh, there were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. About 20 to 25 percent of the population of the Roman Empire uh, were slaves. Some people say in the city of Rome, it may have approached 60 percent of the people there in Rome uh, were slaves. Um, slavery was a deeply uh, rooted part of the social and economic structure of the Near East and, and of the Roman Empire. But slavery back then was a lot different than what we think about when we think about the slavery in the first 200 years or so of the history of our nation. Um, the slavery then was not uh, rooted in race. It wasn't race-based. Uh, people became slaves uh, in three main ways. By, by war, you'd get captured and be made a slave. Um, by poverty, uh, people would sell themselves into to slavery, kind of almost indentured servitude, if you will, because of economic hardship and the, the need to survive. And also through birth, that's probably how most people became slaves. Your, your parents were slaves and you simply were born, born into that. Now, slaves back then were often very well educated or captured from other places and brought uh, into the Roman Empire. Uh, they could be managers of estates, physicians, um, tutors, teachers, shipbuilders, skilled artisans. And normally they were paid, not a lot, but they were paid something. And they could expect, if they were paid well enough, to eventually purchase their freedom. Now that sounds pretty good, but it wasn't all roses to be a slave in that day. They had no legal rights. They actually weren't considered to be persons, and their body belonged to their master. In fact, Aristotle said, a slave is a living tool. And uh, some of the other quotes of that day said a slave was a living possession, a talking soul, a, a, a talking tool, and property with a soul. Now, that's the context here that we come to in our passage this morning. Now, he says here, servants, it, this isn't a normal word for a slave, the word doulos that most of us have probably heard in, in our study of the New Testament, but it's a word that means a domestic or like a household servant. And many commentators point out, and I think this is beautiful, that given that slaves were barely considered to be human, Peter elevates slaves to a place of dignity by even mentioning them at all. So the fact that he mentions them here is an elevating of their dignity. Uh, many of the converts to Christianity were slaves, possibly even the majority of them. And so they were a significant contingent in the churches. Now, I've always thought about this. Think about masters and slaves going to church together. You know, people who are in the ruling class and they're, they're there with, with, with slaves, people that aren't even considered to be a person in their culture. That's the beauty of Christianity and the body of Jesus Christ. Now, people often wonder why the New Testament writers don't criticize the institution of slavery and advocate its overthrow. Um, if you read the New Testament, slavery is never condoned, but neither is it condemned. And you say, well, why wasn't there a direct frontal attack against slavery in the New Testament? Well, slavery was a pervasive, entrenched institution. Again, 60 million people are slaves. And inciting a slave rebellion by the writers of the New Testament would have brought the wrath of the Roman Empire against Christianity and really would have demolished the cause of Jesus Christ. And it would have been pointless, really, for the writers of the New Testament to lash out against slavery because they weren't writing to the movers and shakers of society who could bring about any change. What we do see, though, in the New Testament is the ethics and the morality of Christianity laid the axe at the root of slavery. 
And over time, as people's lives are transformed through Jesus Christ, slavery ended in the Roman world. But when the time Peter is writing here, though, uh, slavery is still in full swing. And, and in this context, Peter tells these household slaves to be submissive to their masters. Now, the word be submissive is in the present tense. It means constantly be submissive and having an attitude of submission towards your master. Now, the word submit simply means to line up under, to line yourself up under someone else, some other authority. And I think in this context, at a minimum, it means to, to be cooperative, uh, to do a good job, not to be complaining and griping and grumbling all the time, and to do excellent work. I mean, at a minimum, to line up under your boss means that. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, a, a very influential woman from the past, says the only Christian work is good work well done. And so at a minimum, to be submissive to your master or your boss or your employer or to management means to do a good job. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, did a lot of writing about, uh, about work, and he got rid of something that had prevailed, that is kind of the secular, sacred distinction. If you're a pastor, a missionary, or, you know, Christian work like that, somehow your work is, is meaningful and glorifies God, but kind of all other work really doesn't matter. Uh, Martin Luther helped shatter that idea. And he wrote this, he said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So one of the things that being submissive means is we do a good job. We do our job well. But he says here we're to be submissive to your masters. He says, with all respect. Now, respect is more than just obedience. It's more than just obeying. It's an attitude of honor towards the person who's in authority over us. Now, he says here, not only to those who are good and gentle. That's pretty easy to do, right? If your boss is a good and gentle and kind and fair person, not too hard to, to submit with respect. But then he says, but also to those who are unreasonable. The word unreasonable there is the Greek word skolios. Uh, we talk about someone that has scoliosis, means their, their, their spine is bent or it's curved. So an unreasonable boss here is someone that's curved or crooked or bent. Some even translated here twisted. Um, some people think it carries the idea of even dishonest and unfair. They may be, be dishonest in the way they pay you. They may be dishonest in uh, the working conditions. They may be dishonest in the expectations that they have. And you may be sitting here today saying, that's my boss. <laughs> You're describing the person I work for, my employer. We could ask the question here this morning, do you have an uncaring, unkind, uh, unreasonable boss? Now, I hope none of our staff raises their hands if I was to ask that question here this morning. But, but if you have that kind of boss, you're still supposed to submit with all respect because what this passage is telling us, Christ should make a difference in our lives in the workplace. And in fact, in all of life, if you'll notice in verse 19, this expands really beyond the workplace because he says, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrow. 
So he kind of expands it from the servant to just a person. So he, he expands this really uh, to all of life. And in verse 20, he mentions you several times. So he's making it personal to his readers that they're experiencing this right now uh, in their lives. Now, there are a lot of differences today with, with what we, how we live and ancient household slaves. And we need to keep those differences in mind. Slaves back then had no recourse when they were mistreated. They had nobody to turn to. There was no labor union. Uh, there was no human resources department up on the fifth floor. Uh, there was no government board, uh, no way to file a lawsuit. Uh, there was no mediation to solve the dispute. They just had to take it. And as they submitted to unreasonable masters, they made the gospel attractive. Because even their master would wonder, what makes this person tick? And so would the other people around them. But again, there's some important, some important differences between our work today and first century slaves. For the most part today, we can choose where we want to work. And if we don't want to work there anymore, we can quit, right? We can terminate our employment. And if we get mistreated, uh, we can report it to the HR department. Um, God gives us the, the freedom to leave our job if we don't like it. And certainly if you don't like your job and it's that bad, you have the freedom to do that. In fact, God even encourages slaves back in this day if they could get their freedom to get it. Back in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells the Corinthians, in speaking to slaves there, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So they were perfectly uh, legitimate. Uh, it was perfectly legitimate for them to come out from underneath that if they could have the money uh, to buy their freedom. But even today for us, sometimes it's difficult to change jobs. There are different factors that make that complicated. And well, you may have to stay somewhere that you don't like to be for a period of time, maybe with a, a bad boss or a bent or curved boss. But what this passage would tell us is while you're there, do a good job and be cooperative and submit and even be willing to submit when treated unjustly and harshly. Be the kind of employee who works hard and is cooperative, even if your boss is far from uh, the ideal. Be the best worker you can be at your job and make the gospel attractive. And when treated harshly, respond in a way that makes the gospel attractive. Our culture, it's a, a fight back, strike back, kind of retaliate, lash out culture. It's like a, a little boy I heard about. He was in his bedroom and he, he was in there with his little sister and his mom heard this little boy yelling and hollering and she went in there and his little sister had a handful of his hair. And the mother went over and got the hair out of the little girl's hand. She said, well, don't be too hard on your sister. She's too young. She doesn't know yet that that hurts. Well, the mom gets, turns around and walks out of the bedroom. She's no farther uh, than a couple steps away. She hears the little girl screaming. And the mother walks back in there, and the little boy says, she knows now. <laughs> I like that. That's how our culture is, isn't it, man? You know, we're going to make somebody pay immediately for what they've done against us. But we're to display a faithful testimony at work and, and exhibit spiritual integrity. And we're not, seen, we're not to be seen as demanding every right and, and complaining about every slight and every grievance that we have. I like the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says, our world bombards us with messages that urge us to stand up for our personal rights. 
We're quick to defend ourselves when we feel somebody steps on our toes, crosses the line, ignores boundaries, or intrudes our personal domain. We can find a lawyer's phone number quicker than we can find a passage of Scripture calling us to endure hardship. Stop and think. When did, when, uh, did you last take it on the chin for the cause of Christ? When did you last surrender your rights for the deliberate purpose of following Christ's example? How rare that is, especially in our fight back, get even culture. That's a good word. We, we need to at times leave our coworkers and our boss wondering what makes us tick and giving ourselves an opening to tell them about the transforming grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so that's the mandate for us. We're to be submissive with all respect to bosses who are gentle and kind, even to those that are unreasonable. Now, in verses 19 to 21, Peter moves from the mandate here to the motivation, from the what we're to do to the why we're to do it. And you'll notice that verse 19, verse 20, and verse 21 all begin with the word for or because. So he's telling us now why we should do this. And I just want to highlight this morning two main motivations uh, for us to submit. The first one I call here is the prize, the reward. He says in verse 19, for this finds favor. And you could really translate that word favor, reward. In other words, if you bear up unjustly under, under uh, uh, suffering and, and, and mistreatment, that's going to bring a reward from God. Notice in verse 20, for what credit is there? Again, that's the idea of reward. And down at the end of verse 20, he says, if you suffer uh, for it and patiently endure, this finds favor with God. It's the idea of receiving a reward. Now, to me, this is a beautiful picture here because even the most menial Christian servant can receive God's reward by doing a good job and patiently enduring when we suffer unjustly. And he doesn't specify the reward here, but it can be reward in this life that God gives to us, but certainly there's reward in the life to come for faithfully uh, following Christ. Again, uh, a quote by Chuck Swindoll I like. He says, our focus then should not be consumed with getting the raise at the office, but with getting the praise from God. Not with getting the glory for ourselves, but with giving the glory to Him. Nothing wrong with getting a raise, but we should be more concerned that God is getting praise uh, from what we do. Now, I love this in verse 19. This is one of my favorite things in this passage. He says, for this finds favor for the sake of conscience, and I, I would better translate that consciousness. If for the sake of consciousness toward God, we bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, what he's saying here is we bear up under unjust treatment because we're conscious of God. We have a spiritual awareness of God's presence, that we're conscious of Him, and there's a trusting awareness that we have of the presence of God with us, and that we're trusting God to take care of us because we believe He's with us. In other words, we don't endure out of some kind of stoic fatalism or sense of resignation. We endure because we sense the reality of God with us in our lives, His awareness with us. We live in the constant awareness of God's presence. Now, I was reading this passage this week, and I got a book in the mail that I'd ordered 
um, called Always Near by Robert J. Morgan. It just came out this week. And uh, I sat down and I read the book. It's a, a very good book, as all of his are. But one story really arrested me in light of what we've talked about here this morning. He says, recently a friend gave me the book Warriors of Ethiopia about local evangelists in Ethiopia who helped spread the gospel through their land. One story involved a man named Nana who, along with 41 companions, decided to bring Christ to the province of Gopha. The 42 men moved into the area, built thatched houses, began sharing Jesus, churches sprang up, and the fabric of society began to change. Enemies of the gospel arose, and the church entered a stage of suffering. The evangelists were seized along with many new believers. They were whipped and chained. Their houses were burned down. Their churches destroyed. For a while, it looked hopeless. I'll just stop right there and just say this. Think about living like that every day. Think about your life and my life, how privileged we are to be here this morning doing what we're doing. But then he goes on and says this, but one man was not arrested, the man named Nana. Local authorities put a price on his head, but he was never captured. He didn't run away or hide. He was in the open every day going about his work. He took care of the 41 imprisoned evangelists and their families. He delivered food and medicine and encouraged the churches. He was everywhere, but he seemed veiled to the authorities. Then he quotes a man who said this, Nana was was easily identifiable, but it seemed he was invisible or the police were blind. When he passed police and officials on the road, they ignored him. At the local prison gate, other visitors waited for permission to enter, but he was walked right past the guards with loads of food. No one, he was never stopped or questioned. The governor and all his officials could not find Nana, even when he walked in their very presence. The police chief who had his hundreds of soldiers searching for Nana could never find him, though Nana passed him every day in town and on the country roads. And then Robert Morgan says this, to this day, Nana is called in that part of the world, the invisible man. Because of him, Christians were encouraged and the work of the gospel thrived despite persecution. More than a thousand churches arose in that area and God was faithful to his suffering people through a difficult stage in the history of the Ethiopian church. Then he says this, Nana was not actually invisible, of course. Somehow the Lord kept him from being recognized, which to me, that's a beautiful story. But then he says, as our lives progress from stage to stage, remember the stranger from Galilee walks with us. We live in his unseen presence and he knows how to take care of us every step of the way. When you awaken in the morning, he's there. As you prepare for your day, he's near. As you pursue your daily agenda, he hovers beside you. If bad news comes, he hears it. If we grow weak, he can strengthen you. As you turn down your sheets, you can say, good night, Lord, since you're going to stay awake and beside me all night, I'm going to sleep. I entrust myself to you. Jesus is our unseen friend who walks among us, travels beside us, and leads us through the stages of life. I love that. By the way, that's a great story about that guy, Nana, isn't it? The invisible man. But that's the way we live our lives. We have an unseen guest with us, the man of Galilee who walks with us wherever we go. And he's saying here, bear up under the suffering of life because you're conscious of God. You have a a trusting awareness of God's presence with you. Now in verse 20, he's going to go on here and say that not all endurance and suffering brings reward. Notice what he says in verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, if you mouth off at work, if you're insubordinate, 
If you're late all the time or if you're lazy or do a bad job or have a sour attitude or you lack professionalism and you suffer for that, Peter says you're just getting what you deserve. No reward uh, for that. There's no credit for suffering what you have coming to you. But the end of verse 20 says, but if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure, this will find reward uh, with God. If you and I endure patiently as a Christian, it's going to bring reward. Now, a lot of Christians get harassed at their workplace. They may be the butt of jokes. Um, you may be mocked for your moral standards at various times. That's happening in our culture a lot now. As we stand for the morality in Scripture, we're, we're mocked for that. Um, others may be given credit for your work. Uh, you may be passed over for a promotion because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Look, you and I should never seek out ill treatment. We should never have a martyr complex. But when it's unavoidable for us to suffer, we need to, to patiently endure. And he says in this text that it brings reward. Uh, Peter listened well uh, to the words of his master, uh, the Lord Jesus. What did Jesus say uh, back in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way they persecuted the prophets uh, who were before you. Peter listened well to the words of Jesus and he passes this on uh, to his followers and to us. Now that brings us here to the second motivation for submitting at work. The, the first one is the reward or the prize. The second one is uh, the pattern of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21. He says, for you have been called for this purpose. Now the question is, for what purpose? Well, for the purpose of enduring unjust suffering. And this tells us you and I have been called to suffer unjustly. So that tells us that, 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 that unjust suffering is not just a, a detour in our lives, it's a destiny. It's not just some cul-de-sac, but it's a, a calling that God has placed on our lives. Now you say, well, why are we called to this as Christians? We're called to this because we're followers of Jesus Christ, and that's what he was called to. So since that was his calling and we follow him, that's our calling as well. Now, I love this verse, uh, this word in verse 21, the word example. Jesus has left us an example to follow. It's the only time you find this word in the New Testament. Um, it's the Greek word hupogramon. And hupo means under, and gramon means to write. So the word hupogramon literally means to write under. And it's a word that's taken from uh, this, the elementary schoolroom of that day, where children learn to write the alphabet. And what they would do, and you know, we, we do the same kind of thing or something similar today, they were given a sheet of paper with all the letters, the uppercase and lowercase written out there and perfectly written out on a, on a sheet of paper. And then you would take a paper and put it on top of that, a paper you could see through, and then you would trace those letters which were perfectly written on that copy and you would trace those letters to learn how to write them. And so you had this writing that was under, if you will, that was the, the perfect letters of the alphabet that then you were to copy or that you were uh, to trace. So you had that perfect uh, capital A and that perfect lowercase a. And I can still remember in third grade when we started learning how to write in cursive, you know, doing that, you know, just painstakingly writing out those letters. 
But it says here that Jesus is our hupogramon. That is, He's the one that's written under. He's the, the perfect letters of the alphabet, if you will, written out in perfect hand. And our goal in life is to come along and to lay our lives on top of His, if you will, and to trace out those letters perfectly into our lives. In other words, you and I are to trace His life. We're to trace out the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He's the perfect pattern underneath that you and I are to live out. Now, the primary purpose of Jesus' death was to pay for our sins. He's going to tell us that on down in verse 24. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. But a secondary purpose of the death of Jesus Christ is to provide an example for us in handling the unjust suffering and the mistreatment of life. So Jesus is the flawless form. He's the the perfect pattern. He's the textbook template for us to uh, mirror our lives on or to to, to base our lives on. We endure just treatment because we follow our master, the Lord Jesus. So unjust suffering is not a, a sign necessarily that we've done something wrong. It's certainly not a sign that God has lost control of, of what's happening or he's failed us. Enduring suffering is a form of the imitation of Jesus Christ. It's part of being a believer in Jesus Christ, who is the suffering, submissive Savior. A.W. Tozer said it well years ago. He says, we don't want a Christianity in which Christ does all the dying. He's died as our example to follow him, to die to self, and to be submissive, and to take unjust injustice in life. And I think maybe Christ's likeness is demonstrated in your life and my life more clearly in how we respond to being wronged and mistreated maybe than any other way uh, in our lives. And we all know that as we go through life, there's a lot of injustice and a lot of mistreatment that comes out there for all of us. Just as Jesus Christ's suffering led to the salvation of other people, so our patient endurance when we suffer unjustly, God can use that to draw other people to Jesus Christ. In his uh, book, Every Good Endeavor, Pastor Tim Keller, who was the former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, um, he tells the story in that book of a young woman who was visiting his church. And he met her after the services one Sunday, and she'd not yet embraced Christianity. She was, she was not a believer, just visited the church. But she was interested in learning more, and the reason she was interested in learning more was because of an interaction she had with her boss who attended uh, that church. Uh, Keller tells the story like this. He says, this woman worked for a company in Manhattan, and and, uh, he explains later it was a major network there. And not long after starting there, she made a big mistake she thought would cost her her job. But her boss went to his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. He said that he hadn't trained her well enough. And as a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went to thank him. She told him that she'd often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. What is it that makes you different? And finally, he told her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I'd have done wrong, and he did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. 
She stared at him for a moment and asked, where do you go to church? And she was there the next week. And that's when Tim Keller has this conversation with her. Now, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Notice this man was living out the example of Jesus Christ, his hupogramon. He was tracing the steps of Christ who suffered for us. And in this case, it was an employer for an employee. But it, it works both ways uh, in the workplace. That's exactly what our text is about. It's, it's submitting at work to make the gospel attractive as we follow the example of Jesus Christ. It changes how we view our work. So let me ask all of us here the question this morning, how's your witness at work? If you're an employer, if you're a boss, if you're in management, are you fair and are you reasonable and are you gracious and generous with those that God has placed under your care? If you're an employee, do you work hard? Do you have integrity? Are you honest? Are you willing to take unjust treatment? and still be submissive with respect. This is how you and I beautify the gospel every day. That's, the, that's how we close the gap, if you will, between Sunday and Monday. Well, when we go tomorrow, wherever God has us, if it's in the, it's at school or in the home or in the workplace, wherever it may be. Now, this morning, we've been talking a lot about our work for Christ and Christ's work through us. But really, the, what lies underneath all of our work for Christ is Christ's work for us. It's the work of Jesus Christ for us that's stated beautifully in this passage. Everything's based on that. That's the foundation of it all. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, had a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin. That's his work for us. And we can't work for him until we take his work for us and accept it. So if you've never done that this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do that as we pray here in just a moment to take Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Really, that's the ultimate act of submission. When you take your place as a sinner and realize you need a Savior, Jesus Christ is the Savior you need. If you've never done that, why not trust in Him this morning? Accept His work for you so that you then can go out and work for Him and build a cathedral for God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who's never trusted Christ, they've never submitted themselves to Him and recognized they're a sinner, they can only be saved through Him, that they'd trust in Jesus Christ this morning and take Him to be their Savior. And Father, for those of us who know You, I pray that whatever we do, whether we work in the home or we're at school all day or in the workplace, if we're retired, wherever we are, that You would unleash us into this community tomorrow morning to go in all the places that you have for us, to be a witness for you. Give us a divine perspective about our work, that, that we're building a cathedral, that we're doing something beautiful. Father, I pray for every employer and every employee here today, Father. Take this word today and use it in our lives. Help us to live conscious of your abiding presence with us every moment. Strengthen us to trace the footsteps of Christ and live in such a way that we make the gospel attractive even when we're treated unjustly. And Father, we come now, we ask that you'd prepare our hearts and our minds as we gather around the table to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his dear name.